My guest, Isabel Leonard, wonderful mezzo-soprano, had a very rich growing up time as a genuine New Yorker, but also a traveler with her folks as she would go across country and they would listen in rotation to cassettes of loon songs, Peruvian pan flutes, and the soundtrack of Dick Tracy. Isabel Leonard is a singer who defies categories. Even though she sings mezzo-soprano roles, she also sings soprano roles, and she would just prefer to be known as singer. And she's also a mom, bringing up a son in the middle of COVID-19. I hope you'll join me for this wonderful podcast with the wonderful Isabel Leonard. Isabel, you're speaking from the safety of your home in New York City, am I correct? That is true. That is true. Yes. And from the, the loud scaffolding right outside that we have had <laughs> these lovely humans working for weeks on end. It's been an interesting quarantine, being quarantined with the scaffold. It's uh, <laughs> It's almost the setting for a movie or at least a sitcom, right? Well, it's like, you know, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> My goodness. So when did you go into sort of voluntary quarantine? What uh, Do you, you remember know, the date? I do. I think we all remember Friday the 13th rather well of March. Oh. Gracious, right? that's that right. An interesting thing, yeah. Um, hmm. Talk about never being suspicious and uh, suspicious, uh, superstitious until now. But um, yeah. I was in St. Louis. I was going to do my first emanation of Faust concert, and then oh. it was canceled. And so I flew back early uh, on Friday. I think we would have had a concert either that night or the next day. And I hmm. came back to New York on Friday, and we essentially quarantined from that point on. And we were very, very strict. Um, mainly because I'm a big scared cat and but also because I didn't I knew that New York even though we weren't in the thick of it quite yet in New York I knew that we were going to be there because of the nature of the city and the nature of the people here and just the fact that we're all so closely you know we live so close together so and I live with my mother obviously and my son and my mom's 78 and my son is 10 and I felt like I being the one able, truly able-bodied person that could take care of everybody in this house, I felt very, very, um, you know, responsible for both of them. So I was strict and I said that nobody was allowed to go out. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just couldn't risk, I couldn't risk my mother getting sick and I certainly no. couldn't get getting, I couldn't risk getting sick myself. Um, so we stayed in, I, I would say that we really quarantined for probably two months, if not a hair over that. Wow. Uh, where we really stayed inside. And um, I would say over the last the last month now, perhaps, or a few weeks now, we have been going out more and taking trips to the park. Um, my mother has been going back to her her office, which uh, she she drives to, and it's luckily it's it's just her and one other person. so it's they're they're being quite safe, and I don't think there's any issue there. Um, so and we've so been doing what we can. <laughs> wow. So uh, was there homeschooling for your son? Did he yeah, trans transition well, online like so many kids? He did, exactly. So school has been, they have been great in that sense. They transitioned very rapidly onto an online platform for all of the students. And then it was a very rapid and steep learning curve for everyone as he was working on an iPad. And so he had to get all these different apps. They did like Microsoft Office and Word and Teams and all of these things that I never work with. So he <laughs> and I both had to learn very quickly. And then eventually I gave up because I just thought I'm really no use here. And so he figured it out on his own. Leave and, it to the 10 year olds, you know, they, the ten -year -old, exactly. they outstrip so, us in technology every single time. Indeed, indeed. So there were every now and then there were little things, you know, they, they would toggle between the Zoom conference here and the on Teams and the 
breakout room over there. And then the, ugh, who knows, but he, he did it. And he actually just finished last week. They went until June 19th. So he's been in school. This is his first week off actually. And he wow. is of course looking at me like I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> mom can we go out into the park <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. i'm like no and, i have a podcast to do <laughs> well and of course as you mentioned you are in the heart of new york and mm-hmm. it's always refreshing to talk to a new yorker through and through because so mm-hmm. many artists travel and to new york have in the past or moved to new york to because that's where the center of just about everything having to do with entertainment is in our country, at least mm-hmm. the one coast. Um, right. But you you wear your New Yorker badge proudly and with great honesty because you're from New York City originally. Am I right? I am. I was born and raised here. That is correct. Yeah. So um, as, a, as a native New Yorker, as some of them would say. <laughs> the New Yorker, um, yeah. The New Yorker. Um, <laughs> share with me if you would, uh, if you can, if you wouldn't mind recalling from your memory, um, was there anything early on as a kid growing up that made you feel either, yeah, New York was a very special place or, um, wow, am I lucky to be in this place? Or were you just sort of wonderfully imagining that, oh, every place has got to be like this. This is where I grew up. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that we knew when we were kids, obviously, that we grew up in New York and it was, you know, the Big Apple and there were all these fantastic things. And of course, as children, you take it, you know, you take everything for granted. The fact that you could go to the Natural History Museum, you know, and that your school's field trips could be to all of these amazing places around the city. Um, I would say that I was lucky in that, you know, we used to visit my family in Argentina every year and they live in a small province of Argentina, uh, Santiago del Estero, which is a small, very dry, flat, sort of dusty in the summer, uh, province. It's not a big city in, in the sense it's not anything like New York city. And so I would have this, this, uh, counterpoint, you know, to my life in the city where I would be in a nuclear family here with my, my parents and myself and our cat. (laughs) And then we would go to Argentina and I would be surrounded by millions of family members at all times. You know, you, you couldn't escape that. And so it was a great, um, two, you know, it was great two sides of the coin to really feel sort of how the pendulum swings and how it could swing in life. And that was always a wonderful, um, like I said, a wonderful counterpoint, I think, to the life in New York City. And um, I certainly, I think it wasn't until I was older, and then I really, of course, started traveling for work, that I realized just how how unique, of course, New York, New York City yeah. <laughs> is. And of Good, course, bad, and indifferent, people, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and every city has its ups and downs, and, um, and it's really about our temperament and how we, how we mesh with the city that we live in. I think, you know, mm. we, my son and I decided to move to Chicago for a couple of years and I, uh, I'm still actually trying to get back into my fast New York city walk after having been <laughs> gone for a couple of years. I'm surprised <laughs> I lost it so fast, but I learned how to, how to stroll. Mm. Um, we walk more slowly in the Midwest. That's true. That's <laughs> it's true. very true, but it's lovely. It's a real stroll, you know, where you can talk and you're not mm. out of breath and, Whereas, you know, New York, I, you know, I, I walked, gosh, we walk everywhere at the speed of light. <laughs> and you better, and you better walk with purpose or someone will bar your path and you're going to have oh, to yes. give way. Yeah. Oh yes. You better know where you're going. And if you need to check a map or your phone, please step aside. <laughs> <laughs> and did you grow up bilingual? Did you speak Spanish as a kid? I did. I did. Yes. Um, I actually learned Spanish. The the babysitter nanny, I guess, that I had was Peruvian from Lima. And Noemi spoke to me in Spanish all the time since I was two years old. And uh, and I learned from her, actually. 
And my, my mother spoke English in the house because my father being American and not having learned any Spanish, uh, that was the language that we spoke in the home. So I, I spoke in Spanish to Noemi. And then when I was in Argentina, of course, I would toggle back and forth between my Spanish with my cousins and then English with my mother and, and English with my father, of course. And yeah, so it was, it was from the start. Yeah. Do you um, credit anything in particular in your artistic temperament, and not to move to a cultural stereotype, but sure. um, having South American and Spanish-speaking heritage, and also particularly Argentine, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think my impression from the Argentines that I have known, and I have many friends over the decades who either came from Argentine family or are directly from Argentina, they um, they do regard themselves as sort of the Parisians, particularly the the Buenos Aires folks, the Parisians of the Southern Hemisphere. Is there <laughs> is there something about the Argentine temperament that you think think infuses you as an artist? That's a, you know I've never had that question before. Um, hmm, I'm not so sure about the temperaments, right? I think you know temperament is. Um, uh, personal, but also can be cultural. You know, it's like nature versus nurture, right? Mm -hmm. I think that my mother's particular temperament is very much her own. How much it has to do with her being Argentine, I'm not so sure. (laughs) It could just be her. So I think think whatever temperament I might have uh, adopted by way of um, nurture would have been coming from my parents, you know, and then coming from the experiences, of course, that I had growing up as well as being with my family in Argentina and and just meeting lots of different people and and seeing how they operate, you know, within a family, particularly a family dynamic. And um, a large family too, right? And a large family, right. I mean, Fair, I think the most least. wonderful thing, at least in terms of temperament that I learned as a child was how to how to function, you know, within a nuclear setting versus a large setting. And I think that that's really wonderful for, you know, only children because most of the time, you know, only kids don't necessarily have the opportunity to uh, to figure out how to, how to operate within a group of kids, um, mm-hmm. you know, every day, day in and day out, right? Because their the energy that they get from their parents is so centered so centered on them, right? That so that the conversations that they're having as children are very adult centered, versus if there are lots of children in the family, they're generally more children centered because they gravitate towards each other. So I think to have that sort of contrast was really lovely for me. Um, temperament wise, and just in terms of Spanish temperament, I would say that I'm, I'm attracted to the music, you know, I'm attracted Mm. to the culture. Um, and because of course I have the connection with my family, there's a sense of romanticism or there's a sense of, um, deep love for the culture and for the music, you know, and listening to tango and listening to the different sort of cultural icons of Argentina, like uh, like Carlos Gardel, for example, you know, singing singing tango. Um, Whenever I feel down, I put on the Gardel recording of El Dio oh. Que Me Quieras, and my oh. spirits are lifted yeah. instantly. Yes, absolutely yes. instantly. See, and that's I, and that's I think just also the tribute to music too, and of course to him as an artist, you know. But that's that's the power of the music, and I think the power of uh, that part of the culture too. So are you one of those people who feels that Gardel, like Elvis, never really died? There are some people, of course, who say, you know, he's still alive. You can, you may, he may go around the corner and Gardel may be there. You know, I think that with all of those, absolutely. I mean, why not? I think that all of those great artists 
they live in us because they become such an integral part, I think, of our DNA. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, that music and vibrations are affect us at a cellular level. You know, when you listen to music like that or a voice, you know, like Gardel or, or, or the voices that we love or for me, you know, it would be like listening to Ella Fitzgerald. The minute I turn those things on, my whole body shifts, my whole system realigns, I think. And, um, and the, so the power of that is so incredible, right? And so strong and certainly shouldn't be lost uh, in our understanding of it. Um, and you've been singing since as long as you can remember. Do I recall that you were, uh, when you were, you were in the Manhattan School Children's Chorus, right? I was, yeah, I did. I started so when singing. So when do you start singing for singing's sake, as it were? <laughs> Like like as a job? <laughs> well, no, no, for singing's sake. No, 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 for singing's sake. I oh, I don't know. I sang. I, I always sang since I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I used to sing. You know, we would take trips. Sometimes we'd get into the car and go wherever we would go as a family. And my mother and I would sing in the car, and we would sing rounds. You know, we'd sing Frère Jacques about thirty thousand times, or Row, Row, Row Your Boat, or. Must have Listen driven your to, dad crazy. No, he, he joined in actually quite a number of times. You know, we had three-part oh, rounds going. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he didn't. He was very laid back when, and he loved music. He he loved music, and we we had a thing in the car where, you know, back when we listened to cassette tapes, um, where we each got one cassette tape, and we basically rotated them through the system on the car. <laughs> so it was a really eclectic mix of things that the three of us would listen to, because I think at the time, the biggest memory I have of this right now is I was probably, I was probably a young teen when the movie Dick Tracy came out and the whole mm-hmm. soundtrack is of Madonna. Yes, that's and true. So, right. Yeah. And I would listen to the, um, <laughs> the cassette tape of Dick Tracy. And then my dad would have this cassette tape of, um, get this this is so crazy of loon calls like the ant like the bird loon calls sure sure and and they're fascinating actually but it was a whole cassette tape of these calls so we would listen to this and also another one which were the i think it was the peruvian pan flutes oh wow um and so that has also a whole other for me a whole other sort of cellular input because i used to listen to this so often as a young person and then I can't wow. remember now which cassette my mother used to listen to, but we would cycle through these cassettes in the car. Um, so we'd go from, you know, Madonna to the pan flute to loons to who knows what else we would listen to. We really oh listened gosh. to a lot of different things. And then as I got older, I, I fell in love with, uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald. Well, that was actually pretty soon. I was early, early on in high school, late elementary school. You know, I listened to Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra. And I, I grew up listening and watching to watching all of the old films in Technicolor and all the musicals and movie musicals and listening to watching Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. And, and just ever that's, that's where I was totally entrenched. Boy, music. did you have great role models for an artist. Uh, I, well, I love the people I used to listen to. <laughs> I still well, do. <laughs> and, you know, when you speak of the, when you speak the names Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra, I think every young aspiring American opera singer, because it is so mm-hmm. tied to our vernacular, mm-hmm. should become a pupil of the work of both of those artists, because who could phrase better than either gentleman or lady? And I think Sinatra actually admired Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald admired Sinatra. I know that they yeah. had a, 
they had a mutual admiration society. And, uh, you know, in talk, in terms of word painting, is there mm-hmm. anyone better than Frank Sinatra in only the lonely? I mean, there's just, we have so much to learn from these great artists. Um, did, when you started getting, as it were, serious about the more classical voice, is there anything of, of what you loved about them that you bring into your own work? Well, so much of that has to do, just like what you said, you know, I, um, the love that I have, I think for language and the desire to transmit language clearly, um, comes, I think a lot, probably from them, you know, that you, you hear a phrase and you, you just understand, it's not, part of it is of course, understanding just the actual technical aspect of understanding diction. But the other part is so much of that has to do with how the phrase is expressed as well, right? And which words are brought out more than other words in order for the listener to catch the phrase in its meaning and not just in its individual words as they come Mm -hmm. out. And so much of that has to do with what they did. And they were able to transmit meaning through phrase, not just vocabulary. And I think that that's definitely something that I have been trying and continue to try to do throughout, even in opera and in in foreign languages. And, you know, it's just extra steps, right, where you have to really, really get into the language, especially if you don't speak it. Is your move towards um, pursuing singing as a professional activity something that happened gradually? Or was it a light switch moment? What was it like for you? Um, well, I, so I always sang right since I was a little girl. And then I went, I went to LaGuardia high school where I studied voice. Um, you know, which is basically meant we sang in choir. I sang with a jazz band. I did musical theater, you know, I did all that kind of stuff that, that we all do. And then I, and then I went to Juilliard for my undergrad and my master's degree. And I would say that it was really at Juilliard where it became more apparent that this could be a career. Hmm. Um, I wasn't, you know, as a child, I think I never said this to anybody as a child, but when I was a kid, I, I knew, or I, I wanted to have a career in the theater. Like I I just thought it would be great. Wouldn't wouldn't that be fun to be on stage? Although I was horrifically shy. So (laughs) it was sort of an interesting, I, that was a path for me that I had to, you know, I had to manage as I was, especially in my undergrad. Um, but I would say that it, it all kind of evolved slowly through schooling that I just kept on having kind of more opportunities to sing classical music. And then, and then of course I went to college and then that's what I was in. That was what I was doing at, at, uh, at Juilliard. It was all about classical music. And so I learned a lot about that world just by being in that building. And then I was lucky I was really lucky to start working right out of school. And so I never actually had the opportunity to sort of oddly to sort of choose. I mean, I did, I could have said no, I guess, but, but in that sense, you know, when you're young and, and you just want to go cause you're, you know, just ready to go and work, uh, I was able to do that. So it, it all kind of, it all just sort of unfolded and then continued to unfold over the last over the last 15 years, really. Wow. I mean, I think if you had asked me if I was a kid, do you want to be an opera singer? I would have said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and I think many of the opera singers that I've talked to, particularly Americans, say that. They, they never mm-hmm. they never imagined, you know, the they went through the the want to be a doctor, want to be a physicist, want to be a fireman, want to be, right. you know, go to the moon. But Exactly. I used to say as a kid that I was going to do something different every day of the week. 
You know, I did a lot of ballet growing up as well. So I said, oh, I'll be a dancer on Monday and I'll be a singer on Tuesday and I'll be a teacher on Wednesday. And then on, you know, Thursday, I'll be, I think I wanted to be a veterinarian at some point. Hmm. And then, and in high school, I thought I would be an anthropologist. So somehow it all, you know, but I wanted to do one of these things one day a week. And then I was going to be a parent, of course, in my mind, not of course, not that, not that people have to become parents, but for me, I figured that would happen. So but and it, and the funny thing about all of that actually is that when I look at what I do now, fifteen years later, there's a little bit of truth <laughs> you bet. to that. You know, every it's, role it's sort of is fun. a different is a different profession, as it were, or a different. <laughs> yeah. You get to try on different personas and different personalities. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. get to we'll get to your multiple personality character of Marnie in a little bit because <laughs> uh-huh. that's the that's the ultimate expression of of, <laughs> of civil character with a larcenous yeah. twist to it, no less. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you a little bit, because I am such an admirer of hers, um, what it was like and what are a couple of things you took away from your studies with Marilyn Horn, one of my all-time, one of my all-time artist heroes? Oh, oh, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you learn things from people just by being near them, by the twinkle in their eye, by their, by their ability to empathize with you just as another person and as a young singer, you know. Um, I remember when I went out to Music Academy of the West for the summer, I had a really, actually had an interesting sort of lead up into being there. I had auditioned actually once before for Music Academy when I was, it was either the year after I finished my undergrad or my first year of, it must have been the year after my undergrad where I thought maybe I should go to one of these summer things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, cause usually in the summer I'd visit my family in Argentina. So the idea of going to a music camp was just not my idea of a good time. And, uh, so, but no I thought, horses, okay, no well, horses to ride at a music camp. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is, you know, why would I want to do that? I'm, I'm going to go see my family. So, but then I thought, okay, I guess I'm becoming a little more serious about this. Maybe I should do what everybody else is doing. So I auditioned for music Academy and the first year I did not get in. So I said, okay, fine. So the next year I went for my audition and, you know, a few days before my audition, I got really sick and I could not do my audition, but I went to my audition. Nonetheless, I walked into the room at my allotted time and I, um, I stood far away from the table, but I just said, I just felt like I had to come in here and say that I'm very sorry that I couldn't audition for you today. I was really looking forward to singing for you again a year later, uh, but I'm sick and I'm, I just can't. And Marilyn looked at me and she, and she said, oh, well, that's fine. And she's like, oh, I can hear it. You know, she could hear my voice. I sounded all congested and everything. And she says, that's fine. She's like, she just smiled at me and she goes, just come back next year. And uh, so I, you know, I walked out and I went, okay. <laughs> so, but I did. I came back the next year. I sang for them again. And then they accepted me into the program. And that was third really the beginning of it. Third, yeah, third time's third the charm. Time. Exactly. And, uh, and that summer, you know, I won the competition that summer, um, that then allowed me to have the recital on the auspices of on the wings of song in New York. And I met Matthew Epstein and I had all of these things sort of came out of that summer with, with, with Marilyn Horn. And she, you know, I remember going into lessons with her and, uh, and playing around with things like Cenerentola and, and, and we would have fun, you know, we would, um, I would be singing, 
or Rosina or whatever it was. And I would say, you know, must say me no. She was like, just try, she was like, just try my version. You mean like, must say me to no. Right? And we would just laugh and we would have fun and I would do it and it was great fun. And and it it allowed me sort of that that flexibility, I think, just to know that I could do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. but you know, the truth is is that with in that relationship with her, you know, again, I met Matthew and I, I always, you know, I've, I've stayed in contact and I saw her, you know, last summer when I went to Santa Barbara and, and, uh, you know, send emails from time to time. And, you know, one of the things that has always impressed me about Marilyn Horn is that she's had just about every career experience one could mm-hmm. have from her own early days of the Los Angeles area and working mm-hmm. in the film studios and being the off-screen voice for this and that and the other thing mm-hmm. to, you know, those years touring the world with uh, Joan Sutherland where they became such the dynamic Norma duo, as it were, and mm-hmm. her wonderful uh, commitment to carrying on the teaching um, at the Music Academy of the West, her own health battles, at which she has miraculously mm-hmm beat mm-hmm. all the odds for decades mm-hmm. now. Uh, she, for yeah. me, is one of those one of those exemplars of what it is to live your life as an artist, mm-hmm. because you 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 know you take the you take the sweet with the sour and you soldier on. She's absolutely she's an indomitable absolutely. force, and she is. And I think that you feel that when you're with her, and so you you adopt a little bit of that strength, right? Mm. You you say mm-hmm. that this is strength that that you can you can exercise as well. And you learn, you know, we all learn so much, I think, by listening to the stories of those who've come before us and the experiences that they have had, you know, we may never, we may never have a a similar or parallel situation, but there's, there's still a lot to learn, I think, by listening. I think one of the interesting things for me about the mezzo-soprano in our world of opera is that, um, the mezzo-soprano is the truly historical gender fluid voice. Um, you get to play boys and you get to play girls Mm -hmm. and you in one opera get to play, let me get this right. A boy playing a girl, playing a boy, playing a girl. I can't remember how many times it switches back and forth in Rosenkavalier, but (laughs) the fact of the matter is, is that part of the core of particularly for someone as gamin as you are tall and slender and, um, and uh, you know, who moves so well on the stage, your ballet training. Um, when you first had to take on one of these trouser roles, um, how did? What were some of the things you tried to teach yourself about how to, you know, as it were, look and and carry on this, of course, um, aware illusion of the audience that they know you're not a forty-year-old boy. Right, but you have to try and convince us at least dramatically. So, what are when you first yeah. started tackling the trouser rolls? What were some of the things you taught yourself, as it were? Well, I would say that in the very beginning, you know, a lot of, you know, there's always a there's always a progression, right, for anybody and for any artist doing things. And the more you do one role, particularly over and over again, the more you learn from it, and and the more you sort of evolve in your own understanding of it. Um, mm-hmm. For somebody like Kerubino, you know, in the beginning, I did not love singing Kerubino. I found it difficult, and I found the, I found it all very deceptively difficult, right? Hmm. Um, and it is the arias are difficult. Anybody who has to sing those arias is is never, never says, "Oh, I love singing this aria," you know. <laughs> we all mm-hmm. kind of go, hmm. 
So aside from the technical aspect of singing the arias, the physicality part for me was um, was a matter of creating sort of a physical vocabulary for myself that I could rely on, especially those first several times that I was doing the role, you know, before it becomes really, really ingrained in your body. Mm-hmm. And so it had to be, so I would sit and I would watch my colleagues and what I used to do in the beginning, particularly in the beginning, and then I still do it even now, is um, I would pick one of the gentlemen in the cast and it was usually either the Figaro or the Count because those are the two I see the most, <laughs> Yeah. Um, depending on who they were in the cast, but I would pick one or the other and I would uh, emulate their movements. I'd emulate their body movements. And I would mm. just, I would watch them and they never knew I do it. I think the first person I probably told that I, that I was doing this was like Luca Pizzaroni one year when we were working together. And I'd be like, you do know I'm, I'm acting like you now, right? <laughs> you know, um, you know, or like maybe the last time I did this with Peter Matei, I was watching him for a while, but so, you know, and I'll watch them. Like, even if they don't need me in rehearsal, if I happen to be in the room, I'll mm-hmm. be watching them. And what they do. And so I would watch and I would watch how they sat down. I would watch where they put their arms when they sit, whether their palms were facing up or facing down, how their feet were. Did they shuffle their feet? Did they not shuffle their feet? Just to kind of get a sense for personality within just physical movement and then what Mm -hmm. I could use and what uh, worked for me and what didn't work for me uh, to develop, like I said, to develop a vocabulary that repeated itself for the character right? Mm. Because then it allowed me to, to, to kind of have a consistent physical vocabulary throughout the course of a piece, right? Rather than relying on just sort of being, you know, so I started like that. I started sort of from the outside in, which is actually not how I normally would go through with a character. I normally think about it from the inside out. Um, but for Cherubino particularly, especially in the beginning, it was definitely from the outside in, uh, Clothes and costumes always helped that process. So I would always ask for rehearsal shoes if I could get them. Oh, yeah, um, of course. That was always very helpful. I don't necessarily feel that way with some other roles, but for, for the men particularly or for roles that I feel that I need, I need a very different physical approach to them. I try mm-hmm. to see what, what elements are going to help me get there faster. So that always helps as well. And then, you know, the thing with Kedubino that um, I discovered as I went along is it's not, like you said, it's the audience knows you're a girl, right? They know I'm a woman singing this part. So I, I can't spend the entire evening trying to convince them that I'm a boy because that's just not, that's like saying the sky is black. They're going to be like, it's just not. It's just not, right? So instead of doing that, what I can do, though, is I can try to transmit, like, the temperature of the, you know, of the room. Or I can, and so meaning by that is that I can find the, emotional, um, feelings, uh, the emotional expressions that this Mm -hmm. kid like Cherubino would have that are going to be similar to experiences and expressions that I would have as a girl. Um, and that I could, I can transmit them honestly and true, right. Without having to Mm -hmm. worry about whether it's a boy or a girl. Right. So parsing the character down, sort of taking, taking the element of boy or girl or whatever out of it for a moment and parsing it down into the elements that are actually going to resonate no matter, no matter, you know, who the character is. Um, and have and that you tackled up... much... Sorry, go So ahead. go ahead, please. No, you... no, no. I was just saying that that process made it a little bit easier because I didn't feel like I was trying to fit into 
a body per se that absolutely was not mine. It was, mm-hmm. no, I'm actually transmitting feelings that are totally human. And, and no that matter, was actually, yeah, no matter what yeah. the outward trappings are. Exactly. 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 Have, have you, uh, have you tackled Octavian yet or is that in the future? No. Not yet. It is in the future, but I haven't tackled it yet. Because <laughs> he's a very different kind of. He's not that. Mm-hmm. He's not that sort of feverish adolescent. He's a very self-assured seven. I mean, yes, he's right. still a, he's still a teenager, but he's a self-assured seventeen-year-old. Uh, right. And he's 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 a count. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll have a lot of fun with Octavian. He's no, just I'm a, sure. I'm sure it's been fun to play roles like um, you know like Sesto. Or, uh, you know, in, in Giulio Cesare or Sesto in Clemenza, De Tito or uh, Ruggero in Alcina, you know, these are all the other pant roles that I've played. And they're all, you know, they all are in a different range, age range than Cherubino, right? They're all older. Um, Sesto, I would say, could potentially be, I, I suppose he could be one of the younger. He could potentially be one of the younger uh, of that that trio. But you can you can play them kind of in a lot of different age ranges, And I think... The younger you're able to play them, in some ways, the easier it is because they can be more sort of gender fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, as I know, you know, looking at my 10-year-old, you know, he's still very gender fluid in that sense, right? He he doesn't he doesn't have this sort of concept that this is how it this is how he should act because he's a boy. He just mm. is who he is, right? Yeah. And I think his the personality, more, right. Exactly. And I think the more we tap yeah. into that for the characters, the easier it is to transmit it to the audience and also the less sort of self-doubt we have trans- trying to play a character, you know, that is quite different than ourselves. Mozart has come up in this conversation now in more than one opera and uh, a role that you have sung both at the Salzburg Festival and on a very famous Met HD broadcast is Dorabella, mm-hmm. a decidedly a real genuine girl. Um, <laughs> and Dorabella can be played six different ways from Sunday. Um, and granted, you would probably adapt yourself a little bit to whatever the direction is. But um, what's your ideal Dorabella? How would, how would you play her if it was entirely up to you? <laughs> so I, she's <laughs> she's another character that I really had to reckon with quite a lot. Her mm-hmm. and Zerlina as well. You know, these are all these like second soprano parts who you go, do you have a backbone? Like what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> you know, and in terms of personality, you know, this is not somebody like if this were a girlfriend of mine, I would be saying, what? What is happening? Pull it together. You know, <laughs> so I really. True. Right. So I really had to, yeah. I really had to reconcile how I felt about the character in order to play the character, which meant for me that most of the time is that I had to spend a lot of time thinking about, I had to justify their actions. I had to really delve in and justify their actions uh, until I believed wholeheartedly that the things that they were thinking and saying and the drama they were or were not creating were all true and honest for them and came from a good place. Because that was the only way I could, me, personally, play that character uh, fully and honestly uh, without judging it along the way. Mm. So somebody like Dorabella, I thought, you know, it's a tricky piece to play. And and it gets tricky if you do it in a very modern production. Because I think that the the constraints of this sort of male-female stereotypes that existed when the piece was created... Uh, start to be very challenged if you move it into a more modern production, right? Because mm-hmm. then you're going to have people saying, well, why do the women, 
you know, why are they so... Uh, why do they fall for these lame disguises? You know, why? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Stuff like yeah. that. You know, why do they fall for the disguises? Or why are they so fickle? Or why are they not so fickle? Or, you know. So I had to kind of go back to when the piece was written, the time in, in which it was written. Like, I think you need to understand that. You know, even if you don't play that, you have to understand it in order to then try to draw parallels into your time or the production's time to be able to really communicate the story that's being told. Um, you know, and I, I, I thought to myself, you know, okay, here's, here's a woman who is, let's just say she's, she's in love with, you know, with, with her partner and, um, you know, with Ferrando. Right. And she is now facing a situation in which they're going to war. And this for the women is a very real thing and they will most likely not come back. And mm -hmm. the only way I could play Dorabella going forward was that she was absolutely 100% convinced that she was never going to see him again. And I think that that's the only way to kind of then move into the rest of the scenes, you know, where she falls in love with Guglielmo and all these things, to play that honestly, right, without making, making her look like a floozy, which is what I know everybody feels about when they play her. So I basically just said to myself, I'm just going to be fully honest with her and go to that place where she believes she's never going to see him again. And when this other opportunity comes along, yes, does it come along very quickly? Sure. Fine. We'll mm. put that detail to the side. But she, <laughs> it is she's opera after all. You know, let's just, let's just, you know, we'll call the time period what it is where the women at that time probably didn't have a future unless they were married. True. So, you know, so I had to think about all those kinds of details and go from there. And then translating that into a more modern time does certainly get tricky, right? Sure. And you then you have to just say, maybe this is just part of her personality. And her personality is that she cannot be alone and she needs to be with somebody. And so, you, you know, you have to kind of go through that mental process. And we've all known people like that, people who of are serial, serial monogamists and they, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they just don't know how to live life as a, as a single person. So true. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you're, you're, you've moved into a, a psychological territory that I'd love to explore with you for a few minutes because, <laughs> of course, one of the most arresting things of the many things I've seen you do in the last decade is your creation of a brand new character in the title character in Nico Muli's opera, Marnie, which you mm. did at its Metropolitan Opera premiere. Um, how did Marnie enter your life uh, at first? How did this project come to you? And um, and well, what were some of your initial thinkings about, am I going to play yeah. this Hitchcock character? <laughs> so Marnie came along because Peter Gelb one day called me or talked to me and he said, it was years ago, he said, you know, Nico Muley is doing a new piece, Marnie, and he wants you to do it. And it became this sort of thing. And so Nico wrote the piece for me to sing it. And then fast forward, now we're doing it finally at the Met. And in the process, you know, from creation to the Met, the, the piece that Nico was writing um, came from the book, right? Came from right. The, the Marnie book, not from Hitchcock's right. film. Not, not um, from the film, right. Right. And the film also, of course, came from the book as well. So I read the book, which was, I thought, very, very interesting. And it gave a really, and I actually never saw the movie. I purposely did not watch the movie huh. um, okay. because I didn't want, I didn't want that image in my mind throughout mm -hmm. the opera because I knew it was different. And I knew that Hitchcock had taken things and changed things around. I also knew how mm -hmm. he was, uh, <laughs> I knew how he was as a director. I knew his relationship with Tippi Hedren was not positive. I, you know, no. there were a lot Especially of Especially by Marnie. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. And I also, I remember watching, uh, 
I think I had looked for it online or something and I saw one of those previews, you know, and it was like the preview that they had made for the film at the time. And when I watched the preview, I was actually so um, sort of annoyed by it that it solidified my decision to not watch the movie until I had finished the It's very misogynistic. The the, the, I, I remember yes. seeing that, that trailer as well. And I thought, oh man, yeah. this is not going to make any friends nowadays for this movie at all. No, it was exactly that. It was, it was uh, very misogynistic and it was... Um, over-dramatized in a way, in, in a way that did not sync with my interpretation of what I had just read in the book. So I just didn't watch it. Um, you know, the book is fascinating because the book is from her perspective and it, and it's, she speaks in the book. Uh, she's, you know, it's, it's from her voice. So you hear a lot in the book, the dialogue that she has with other people, but then her reactions to her dialogue with them and the way she's feeling in the moment and even her reactions to her own feelings. So you get this very layered uh, view that she has of herself. Some things she understands well and some things she doesn't. She even, she says in the book many times in a way, I'm, I'm not even paraphrasing because I can't remember details, but, but she basically says in the book, you know, why am I feeling this way? So she still can't even identify it, which is such, I think for me was such a key um, attribute to her in order to play her as, again, as an honest character, because it would be one thing to play an evil character, you know, who makes horrible decisions, steals and does all these things because they're a bad person. That's kind of too easy, in my opinion, right? It's another thing to play a character who has a level of understanding, but also a level of confusion in their own heart and soul. Um, and then how do you portray that, right? But I think when you have a level of confusion and you're operating in a sense from a from a from a place as a as a person that you're not whole, those actions that you take that from the outside in look malicious, um, from the character's point of view, are simply choices you're making to to just operate in the world that you understand. Right? You're not necessarily doing it because you're trying to hurt anybody. You're just doing it because that's all you know. And so she was an interesting character that way. I left the theater. I, I saw a matinee performance and I left the theater. Um, it kept me up that night because, <laughs> um, n- not because I was unsettled uh, by the performance itself, but your characterization stuck with me as something that was so nuanced and also in its own very strange way, very sympathetic. I, I couldn't mm. help but go walk away from the opera thinking that um, you and Nico and the designer of these incredible costumes that you got to wear throughout the show, which are really amazing, um, but discovered uh, discovered a depth and a nuance to this character that actually renders her, for all of her, as it were, bad behavior, sympathetic. I mean, oh, yeah. because she is trying to survive in a male-dominated world, mm-hmm. in a society of its time, which is the the odds are stacked against her, and she's just trying to figure out how to get through it all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and I think he, Nico created for you and for whoever takes the role thereafter, a wonderfully nuanced and complex character um, that if you're not careful, you could play her for caricature. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But if you if you are working with a sympathetic director, um, it's all there in the music. Nico seems to have been able to create for mm-hmm. you and with you, clearly, a characterization that is very rounded and very compelling. 
Was well, this the- I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you came away with that because one of the goals that I had throughout the piece was to to create um, to create a performance in which that would hap- that exact thing would happen where you would leave and you weren't actually entirely sure whether you sympathized with her or not and it left mm-hmm. you thinking because I think that that was the whole point with her is that so much and of course you know with all the reveals at the end of the show and things as to you know the, the reasons as to why she was really doing this you know it was all for approval ultimately which is i think something that we can understand yeah. that she was dealing with a level of um desire for approval that essentially wrecked her life yeah. and when she found out at the end that you know all these years what she had thought that was once true was no longer true. It was not only a massive weight lifted off of her shoulder, but to imagine that point, you know, moving into the future for her, the stuff she would have to reckon with the things she would have to go back and look at and all the things that she did in order to seek that approval out that she now has to go. I never had to do any of those things to, you know, just to sit there and think, Uh, imagine that character then having to go and do that work then makes you realize just how messed up it was for her up until that point. Exactly. Right. Um, Is this the first principal uh, operatic role that's been written for you or is this your maiden voyage and new music? Well, I mean, we did Cold Mountain with Jennifer Higdon, you know, at Santa Fe, and then we did it in Philadelphia. And she, I don't know, I I I, I don't want to say that she wrote it for me, but I definitely had expressed to her my true desire to sing that part. And when she was writing the piece, I had sent her just screenshots actually of music that was technically more soprano-ish because she wanted it to be a soprano. And I said, no, but I can sing it. I can sing it. I just basically said, I can do it. It's fine. I can do it. Here are the soprano, so-called quote unquote soprano things that I sing. So Mm -hmm. here's the range that I'm able to, you know, do. And, and I would send her pictures of scores and the realm, you know, the, the singing realm, uh, to see if that was something she was interested in. And, and just to say that this is what I could do. And so they, then they, you know, they agreed and they were like, yes, we would love for you to sing this part. Um, and, uh, and so that's what happened with cold mountain. Um, but I think Marnie, you know, certainly from the inception, I think Nico, I think I'm not going to speak for him, but, you know, of course I think he had the idea of my voice in his head as he was writing it. And, and he even says, you know, oh, yeah, all those octave, you know, big old octave leaps and bigger leaps. Cause he used to say, he said to me when he was writing, he's like, what do you like? And I was like, Oh, I like doing leaps and jumps and things. I'm happy to do all of that. And then of course, when I got the score, I was like, well, you have to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you take it, you take us to an area, cause I know you've, you've talked about this before uh, in interviews is that, you know, when I think of you, I think of some of the great singers of the past who have sort of defied category. If you go all the way back to Molly Brown and Viardot and mm. and in more modern times with people like Shirley Verrett um, and even to an extent, particularly early in her career, someone like Jesse Norman, who said, just call me a singer. I said, yeah. you know, most of what I sing is what you would normally call mezzo-soprano nowadays, but I also am not scared of climbing to the top of the stairs. So how are you, how are you engaging with this (laughs) uh, Fach fluid (laughs) sense in in your own, in your own life as a singer? How do you You peg yourself? 
This started, I don't, I don't. I think that's the whole key, right? As I mm -hmm. try not to. Um, you know, this started many years ago and it was in conversations when I, that I was having with Matthew Epstein. And he was like, you know, he was the one that at one point had said to me, he's like, I don't think you need to label yourself anymore as soprano or mezzo. And I said, you know what? I totally agree. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, because first of all, why? And I was even in the beginning of my career, you know, doing so-called mezzo things, but then I would sing Exultate Jubilate, you know, Mozart. And then I would do something else. And then I would do another sort of soprano-ish type thing. And all of these things had been put into my calendar. And, and again, very fortunately so, in order to continue stretching me kind of on purpose, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so with that just came the sort of, I, I wouldn't say fearlessness because, taking those pieces into lessons and things is certainly not comfortable, but, um, <laughs> but working on them and, and doing the technical work in order to be able to do that is, is fantastic. Right. Um, and so I would say that moving forward, you know, then we went through a period of time where we tried to get presenters to not write mezzo and to not write soprano. And I cannot tell you that has been one of the most difficult things <laughs> to get People presenters like to agree with because yeah. they, they feel so uncomfortable without being able to put you in a category, which is kind of right. wild when you think about the rest of the performing arts world. You have a ballet dancer is a ballet dancer. You have a pop singer is a pop singer. You yeah. know, a cellist is a cellist. The we pianist don't, we is a don't pianist. say Madonna soprano, thank you very no, much. No, exactly. Know? I mean, that would or be like... Or Beyonce sorry, mezzo soprano, although she's more of a soprano, <laughs> I suppose. But there I go. I'm just as guilty as the next person. <laughs> but so, no, but you know what I mean? So that's exactly yeah. it. So it's very interesting. And I think it comes from the fact, you know, of course, companies feel like they need to be able to hire, you know, SATB, right? Soprano, alto, tenor, bass, yeah. or whatever they need for their... For their um, performance. And if they know what they need, then they can go to the pools in which they would find said singer and they would mm. pick from that pool. But if you have a singer that doesn't belong to a pool, then they don't know what to do with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been a very funny kind of entertaining process. So then what's happened most recently, I've noticed in the last handful of years is now, so now some presenters won't say anything at all, which is terrific. It's easier, of mm -hmm. course, when you do a recital because you're just, it's just you. So they don't feel yeah. so pressured. But, you know, you go to sing something like Damnation of Faust and they want to write mezzo or soprano or whatever. So now I have found when I look at programs, it sort of becomes a joke with me. Uh, I open the program and I say, okay, what am I today? And I look and see, I look and see what they've put in the program. And now the program, whoever decides, puts in whatever they want. They put soprano or mezzo. And it comes, it's just like toss the coin. And it usually has to do with whatever the pieces that I'm singing in that place. And somebody right. says, well, it's a soprano piece. Okay, Isabel Leonard, soprano. <laughs> I love it. It makes me laugh. Well, and Marguerite, the one that you were about to sing when you, uh, when coronavirus uh sent everybody right. home. You know, I, I think the first time I ever heard a recording of it, it was probably a broadcast, was Regine Crespin, right. who was a soprano. And exactly. I grew up with a another recording of Janet Baker singing the aria, who was right. clearly a mezzo-soprano. So <laughs> you're right. This this sort of um, yeah. this sort of categorization, particularly yeah. with your kind of voice, is one that uh, is tricky. And, you know, you go back and you look at even some of the operas of Handel, and particularly when you get to the men, not the not the castrati, but when you get to mm -hmm. the male singers, it's just bass. 
Right. And sometimes it's a baritone and sometimes it's a bass and sometimes mm-hmm. it's something in between. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, we're it's just like with specialties in, in the doctoring profession. We have become obsessed right. with labeling people. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. But I'd like, I, well, I'm, I'm happy I'm, to know I'm that you're just... defying the labeling. <laughs> I am. I'm trying very hard. And I have to say, I keep on waiting for that day that I open a program and it says like Isabel Leonard tenor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe I'll do that when you come to Cincinnati. (laughs) I would love it. Please do just for fun. That would be hilarious. Isabel Leonard sing Rosina as a tenor. I mean, it would be fantastic. Why not? Get people, get people talking. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and Rosina has been sort of a cheval de bataille for you as well. You've, you've sung it a fair amount and, Mm -hmm. uh, she can be again like Dorabella or, or many of the many of the characters that you sing can be interpreted so many different ways. But mm. again, um, if you have your druthers, who is your Rosina? What's her character for you? Well, again, I always you know I always err to the side of um, kind of brutal honesty. I think maybe with the characters, I mm-hmm. I try to make them as human as I can to not take, not make them caricatures of a human, to make them honest humans, you know, something you would see in a film or, you know, in a movie. <laughs> um, so for me, you know, she's a young woman who, again, we think about the time period in which this was written and, and the, the story that was written, you know, she is this woman who is being basically held behind lock and key by a gentleman who wants to marry her. And, and it's a little weird, <laughs> you know, yeah, this I'll is say. her guardian. We don't really have the, the background per se as to what's happened here, but this is her guardian. And now he wants to marry her. And this is really unacceptable to her, but she's also in a position in which she cannot alone change her scenario. So, you know, when she then, so then you could take it two ways from that point on too, depending on how you are or what you think you are. Like you could take her meeting Lindoro as a, a wonderful stroke of romantic fate um, and just go with that. And she's fallen in love and isn't this great. And now they can really make a change or you can take it as she's using this as an opportunity to get out. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is an interesting way to take it actually too. even, I think about it even just now, just talking to you, because if you think about it going into the marriage of Figaro next and the fact that they end up having so many relationship problems, um, it would be curious to create a real sort of film from her evolution as Rosina in the Barber of Seville with Lindoro, uh, then moving into the marriage of Figaro and actually seeing how they evolve as humans mm. in their relationship with each other. Because I would assume that if you think of this in a real way, they never really had a lot of time to get to know each other in Barber of Seville. They sort of fell in no. love and then ran away together. And then it wasn't maybe until later that they really got to know each other. And maybe they're actually incompatible people. And so maybe all of the issues that, you know, came about in Marriage of Figaro, aside from the fact that the Count is a philanderer, but, you know, which is also an issue, but maybe they were also incompatible, right? So it really gets you thinking when you kind of delve into something and actually ask the characters and the stories to be human, like to be very human. I would love one year to invite you to sing Rosina and then the next year come back and sing the Contessa. (laughs) Oh, that would be great. That would be fantastic. I just did the duet... With Jenny Brugger for fun. Mm-hmm. It's fun. I'd love to sing Contessa one day. Well, and the, the idea that you have one singer who could do both and who looks, who will from one year to the next look 
basically the same. And as we know, the journey from uh, the Barber of Seville story to the uh, the Marriage of Figaro story is only a couple of years. They haven't right. been married all that long. It's just not a 25-year relationship we come into when we get to the Castle of Aguas Frescas. This is just right. a little while later. So right, exactly. fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to I'd like to spin back to something that I know um, a lot of folks who listen to these podcasts um, are always fascinated to know about singers, um, which is this um, all this big push and pull of singers as parents, and you're bringing up a son. Mm-hmm. And you have you have the help of your mom, which is great. Um, and your son is now be no longer at a toddler's age, but not yet going to mm-hmm. high school. Um, how how are how do you balance how do you huh. balance being a mezzo mom as it oh, were? Oh gosh, a mezzo soprano tenor mom. Um, yeah, a mezzo soprano tenor mom. Sometimes soprano mom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, you, you know, know there honestly, is always Anna Russell who started out singing soprano, yeah. and by the time at the end of her career, she was singing the bass roles in, in the ring. So, well, I mean, why not? Well, Look, that talk about a long career that way. Exactly. You know? I mean, but sorry, to, sorry to no. sidetrack you. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, listen, I don't know. Balance is tricky. I think we're always seeking balance. I think the career itself, I have to say, you know, it's, it doesn't always lend itself to very easy balance, the career of having to travel a lot for work and even more so now than even before, you know, it's, um, this, the jet setting age has been great for opera, but also I think has been very difficult for the singer. Um, because having to step right off a plane to sing is really not comfortable for most of us. Um, and so there's that level of, um, strain, physical strain just to do your job. Right. And then there's the, then there's the, the responsibility of being a parent, you know, which has so much to it, right. As you know, it's, it's the schools and the people and who's around your child when you're away and who, and trying to be as active a part of their life and the people that they are encountering while you're away uh, is, you know, is crucial, right? But it is a tricky thing to do. Um, I think one of the biggest things, one of the hardest things, at least for me as a parent, and something I thought about a lot when he was younger and tried to sort of reconcile in myself was the knowing that it was important for my child to be able to rely on other adults as well, right? Hmm. Because I think as parents, we are very possessive in a way over our children when they're little, particularly, right? And I know that mothers sometimes go through periods of time where they, you know, if your child were to, if you were to stand in a room, you know, with two other people and your child were to go to some other person and not to you to give them a hug first, that always stings a little bit as a parent. But I made a choice early on, you know, because I had a couple wonderful nannies, especially in the beginning when Teo was young, that even if it did sting, if, you know, if I came home from work and he still went to the nanny first, I was okay with it because I thought this means that he is safe and he feels safe hmm. and he wasn't lacking something this period of time that I was gone, that he was cared for and loved and that this person made him feel safe. And that's for their benefit, right? It would have been for my benefit had he come running to me, but it would have meant that maybe perhaps he you know, was missing something. And so I had to really kind of think about that for a while in the beginning. Um, and I just wanted him to be safe, you know, with whomever he was with. And now as he's older, it's, it's also shifted, you know, cause he's older, he's more articulate and he can 
express what he wants or what he doesn't want. And, and now, actually, now that he's older, he wants to spend more time with me, uh, which is great. <laughs> so he's, And he's, he's had a real opportunity these last couple of months, of course. <laughs> well, oh my gosh, yeah, seriously. I mean, we kind of joke about it. You know, he says to me, even now in quarantine, he's like, I never see you. And I said, I know, it's a very strange thing. I was like, you've been in school and I'm oddly extremely busy, even though I'm not working. It's a very strange thing. Mm. And so our time has been sort of turned upside down. But, you know, we went, he came with me to London and to Amsterdam in the, in the fall and winter before all of this happened. So we've actually been together now for quite some time, well over a year where we have really been together. Um, and it's, it's nice, you know, it's a, it's easy. We have kind of an easy, easy way of being and, um, you know, but there's still, you know, you still think as a parent, like, what can I do better? And how can I prepare them for the world? And how can I make him independent? And, Oh, and, and feel confident in his own independence and, and yet remain youthful and remain innocent so that he's not, um, he's not dealing with the woes of the world quite yet. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a it is one thing. of the most, it's one of the most precious things a parent can give a child to give them a real mm -hmm. childhood and because mm -hmm. adulthood comes quickly enough uh, and preserving some of that and nurturing that is uh, one of the greatest gifts I think a parent can give a child. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's a, it's a tricky thing. And, and I, uh, you know, I hope, I wish for all children to be able to, well, there's a whole other conversation, right? But I do wish for all children to be able to have that safety. You know, it's so important and it's so helpful to creating wonderful adults. <laughs> Amen. Well, we always ask our podcast guests the same set of questions and you are entitled to take the fifth amendment on any one of mm -hmm. these. So okay. we'll can. <laughs> What do you what do you normally have for breakfast? Oh, it really depends. Sometimes I get on an avocado toast kick. I like making avocado toast. I can make eggs and bacon for Teo. He loves that. But I do happen to love getting up in the morning and actually having a celery juice. How gross is that? But I, I kind of stay it. I stay sort of healthy if I if I can really focus. I, I like to do the healthier things. So like celery juice, fruit, things like that. <laughs> How do you deal with stress? Oh, I don't know. Not very well, I think. Um, stress has come, comes and goes in my life uh, uh, in different forms. I think originally up until about a year ago, stress would come in a form of mild stomach upset and then it would go away and I didn't really have to deal much with it. And then in the last year, it's been um, much, more of, much more of a violent thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's been causing a lot more anxiety, you know, and I think that a lot of things like when your cup runneth over, uh, your body doesn't handle things as well as it usually does. So I've spent a lot of time in the last eight months identifying where stressors are coming from. And I think sometimes we have stressors that have been around for a very long time, but perhaps we've had a couple things added to our cup. And therefore, mm. as I said, it runs over and now things are starting to sort of spill. So you have to sort of pick up the pieces. Um, but stress, yeah, sleep. I think I would say that the first thing I do when I feel particularly stressed is I go lay down. Yeah, that's that's Good the move. first. Lay down, go quiet, get quiet, turn things off, or watch watch some funny TV, something that will really allow my brain to disconnect from whatever it is that's stressing me out. It sounds like you've had a lot of mentors, but would you single one person out in particular who has been a big influence on you? I have had really wonderful people truly in my life. And I would say that I, I would have to say that Edith Burrs, you know, who was my voice teacher at Juilliard mm -hmm. and 
I studied with her, you know, since I was 17 for, you know, those seven years at school. And then many years after that, uh, she was always a, a model of, um, peace. You know, I always walked into her home for lessons and I was always able to put down what it was that I came in with and, you know, figuratively and literally, and she could always sort of read my face. Sometimes she could say, how are you? And I would burst into tears. And sometimes she'd say, how are you? And I was fine. And her, the way she was, at least with me as a teacher and the dynamic that we had together and, and the understanding and then the many chats about life as life continued. And then I had my child and, you know, all the many different things that she, she was always there to listen and then to gently guide me back into what we actually had to do at the moment, which was sing. And that was always a really, I think about it now as a really lovely lesson. It's like all of these things are happening in your life. Life is not going to stop happening and you can still sing throughout all of it. And that was really helpful, especially, you know, later in life when I had a lot of, of other, you know, maybe personal issues that I was dealing with and I would get to a performance and I would have to sometimes shake myself out of it, but I would definitely be able to, and then go on with the show. What are you reading right now? Ooh, good question. There are a couple things I have. I was actually going to start White Fragility, uh, with everything that's going on in the world right now, I really Great wanted book. to. I highly recommend yeah. it. I read it about uh, six months ago. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was going to start that. And there's also another one too um, along that vein that I wanted to start. Um, and I actually have, I, we haven't started it either because I'm sort of, I'm sort of in the middle. I've been, I've been doing all these other things in the last few weeks, but we wanted to start my son and I, Trevor Noah's book that he wrote. Um, oh, yes. That is, this one's actually sort of geared towards children, but it's about his life. Um, and his, his youth and growing up and everything. So I'm kind of interested to read that with my son. Uh, he's been, I've been getting a little bit of the books that he's been reading, of course, because he's been reading like the Hardy Boys and things like that, which I think is super fun. I read at least 10 of them. I highly recommend them. I know. I remember too. I remember reading those in Nancy Drew when I was young. And then um, <laughs> I have a pile of books that I plan on reading over the next few months, I hope. Now I'm trying to remember which are the ones that are in there. There are a few acting books actually in there that I like to read, kind of go back to from time to time. Um, and I'm trying well, to think there's one other. Well, I can't remember. Speaking I'll, of, I'll speaking think about of that, it. Well, speaking of intellectual stimulation or not, are there TV <laughs> series or podcasts that you enjoy to watch or listen to? Oh, gosh. You know, TV for me and film a lot of times is really about distraction. Mm. Um, it's really about watching something that's going to distract me or put me to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did recently, you know, however many months ago, finally catch up on Schitt's Creek, uh, which welcome, welcome to the club. <laughs> oh, it is the funniest thing I'd seen in such a long time. Fantastic. And, oh, it is just too funny. So I watched. I've watched that, of course, already. I'll go back and binge watch on series, you know, that I've seen multiple times. There was that. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that I like to watch frequently. Um. Gosh, I don't well, know. Well, yeah, if, there's o- if there's only one, Schitt's Creek is plenty fine for me. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really, it really is a good one. I'm sure there are others, but it definitely is usually geared towards Distracting the end you. of my day. Yeah, yeah, when I'm trying to just sort too. of distract. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine too. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've had a lot of advice in your career from teachers and managers and, and interested and disinterested parties. Is there one bit of advice that sticks out to you that you keep as a little, you know, post-it note, as it were, metaphorically speaking? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not even sure where it came from. If it was something that came to me or or came up in my brain or, or where it came from, but but it was this concept of like it's just opera. <laughs> <laughs> it's just opera. It's just opera. Like, yeah, don't That's, get I mean, stressed out. It's just yeah, opera. We are not. We are not trying to send someone to the moon. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, do you have a favorite musician? I think we've talked about this already, but just in case, do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music? Well, yes. I mean, Ella Fitzgerald, she certainly is that person. Uh, I yeah. do really love listening to other, I, I really listen to classical music, not very often, to be honest. I listen to it uh, for research. I listen to it, uh, certain symphonies, like I'll listen to Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony on repeat because I love it. Wow. Um, strange, but it's just true. No, not strange um, at all. It's a masterpiece. It's a, it's a masterpiece. I love it. And it makes me feel good. Uh, I'll listen to, I have a recording of Gene Kelly singing and I never really thought he was much of a singer when I watched his movies, but, but he has a quality to his voice that is quite innocent. And so mm. I have a CD of his that I tend to listen when I fly a lot cause I, I don't like flying. And so listening to his voice, um, takes me a little bit out of myself, which is good. Um, who else I've listened to, Oh, I've listened to so many things. You know, I, I, I had a long infatuation with the Beatles when I was, uh, 13 and 14. And so I know everything that they wrote and I listened to them. And I also, with that infatuation, I sort of walked into the realm of sixties and seventies rock and roll. And hmm. so I have CDs of Leonard Skinnerd and like ZZ top and Mark, uh, Mark Boland or whatever T-Rex, you know, and all these. So these are things that I'll listen to. Like when we clean the house, I listen to, I always say that music for me really is connected to the event and to whatever is happening in that moment. So, Hmm. so it's all, I have like, it's like a soundtrack for life. (laughs) Last but not least, um, what's your elevator speech as it were for convincing someone you meet to try opera for the first time? Hi, I'm Isabel Letter and I sing opera. (laughs) Oh, opera. I've never been to an opera. Yeah. Oh, I say, Oh, well you really should come. You should check it out. And then they'll be like, well, I don't know. I wouldn't know where to begin. I'm like, well, that's fine. I was like, I can give you a couple names of things. These are funny. They're usually pretty easy to understand. Um, you know, I usually, I would have to say that I would get into a conversation with somebody like that and I would actually ask them if they, what were their, what were their reservations? Hmm. And if they just say, you know, well, I, I don't know, I guess the language maybe, or I don't, I don't really understand, or I don't feel like I know enough about opera to then go and listen. Then I would say, oh, I would say, I, I totally understand that. You know, when you don't feel like you have a connection to something, you don't necessarily feel like you're equipped to have an opinion perhaps. Um, so what I try to actually do is I just, I try to get them tickets to come and see whatever I'm doing. Cause I find that the best way to get somebody to go and see something new is if they have somebody they can connect to on that yep. stage. Cause that's all we need. I think as humans ultimately is that connection between one person to another and, you know, and then if they come to see a show, then maybe they'll get curious to see a different one. Right. Or, or listen to some other genre of music or, you know, who knows? 
Well, Isabel, I can't thank you enough. As you say, even in this time of COVID-19, uh, I watch online and you seem to be the most generous of colleagues uh, turning up for virtual galas and benefits and chats and helping other singers and helping organizations through this time. We all wish you well, and we look forward to, uh, with fingers crossed, that uh, you'll be able to help us celebrate our 100th anniversary only one year late when you come to Cincinnati in 2021 for Rosina and the Barbers. Oh, Seville. I certainly hope so. And well, it's okay. Me we too. can celebrate 100 many times. I feel like when you turn 100, you should de- you should celebrate for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep that in mind. And thank you again, Isabel Leonard, so much. No, thanks for having me. This podcast is part of a series produced for Cincinnati Opera by John Brennan at Sonic Signatures. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.